John chapter 3 this morning. One verse, uh, you'll recognize it as immediately when I say it. John 3.16 is the verse we're looking at. Now, if you haven't been with us over the course of the last um, six to eight months, uh, we've been exploring John's gospel together. And I, I, d- sometimes things just work this way, where God just providentially plops us right in John 3.16 on Easter Sunday, because we started in John chapter 1 in, uh, in September, I think, and we sort of worked our way real slowly, and you all were like, oh, how long are we going to spend in the first 18 verses of John? But um, God had a plan. And this is it. We're here this morning in John 3.16. I'm going to read this for us this morning, and, uh, and then we'll consider it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The, uh, the 2009 uh, college football BCS National Championship game featured two teams. It featured uh, the Florida Gators and the Oklahoma Sooners. And maybe you were living under a rock in 2009, but for those of us who weren't, everyone knew the qu- quarterback for the, the Florida Gators. Um, his name was Tim Tebow. I'm sure that name at least strikes something in your brain. Uh, but Tebow's career was one that was, uh, was very celebrated at the University of, the University of Florida. Uh, and what made Tebow very special, in addition to the fact that he won a Heisman Trophy and that he had all kinds of college football records and won a couple of national championships there, uh, what made him notable was his, his leadership skills and his ability to motivate his teammates uh, in, in, in sort of an unprecedented way for like a 20, 21 year old guy. Um, he possessed uh, the it factor um, and, uh, and was able to essentially by himself, motivate a team to win a national championship. But something else that made Tebow notable in the public was his outspoken commitment to the Christian faith. And, and that element of Tim Tebow's career is one that drew great criticism, which is no surprise. Um, when professional football didn't work out for Tim Tebow, um, he, started to, he started playing minor league baseball and played minor league baseball for, for several years. And when, in 2017, when he was playing for the Columbia Fireflies, Tebow was mocked openly um, by Charlie T. Riverdog, the, uh, the mascot for the Charleston Riverdogs, which might be the most absurd sentence I've ever said on a Sunday. Um, but uh, every time that Tebow was involved in a play, Ch- Charlie T. Riverdog would kneel down and pretend to pray, uh, sort of like, uh, uh, just like Tebow would when he scored one of his 145 career touchdowns at the University of Florida. Uh, Charlie T. Riverdog, in as much as a mascot of a minor league baseball team, is able to apologize, apologized to Tim Tebow later. I don't know. I don't know if that counts. But anyway, he did. But, but take, go, go back to the BCS National Championship game in 2009 now. So we're 2009. Uh, Tim Tebow comes out onto the field to play this big, one of the large, biggest football games of his college career. Um, and uh, on his eye black, underneath his eyes, uh, were the words John on one side and 316 on, on the other. John 316. And what makes that even more incredible is that within 24 hours of Tebow playing this football game, uh, he, uh, 90 million people. Googled John 3.16 within 24 hours. 
Needless to say, and I know for many of us, John 3.16 is one of the most popular, if not the most popular verses in all of scripture. Again, if you grew up in church, you likely have it memorized, maybe in the KJV, but, but you likely have it memorized. And the verse has been used by evangelists for years and years um, because of uh, the fact that it really does represent, at least at some level, the gospel in a nutshell. I don't know who coined that t- term. It might have actually been uh, Billy Graham or someone like that. But the gospel in a nutshell is what, is what many people have called John 3.16. If you've been with us as we've studied John's gospel, we've talked a lot about God revealing his plan of redemption. That this is a, a, something that's progressive or it happens over time. God doesn't just show us everything about everything in the first five pages of the Bible. He slowly reveals himself to his people and he reveals his plan and his purpose over the course of the Old Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, we get to the four accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we begin to see in the Gospels that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that came before. That Jesus is the yes and amen, as the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians. He's the yes and amen to all of the promises of God. And so far in John's gospel, even though we're only halfway through three, the chapter 3, we've seen that, uh, we've seen that Jesus is, is uh, pulling back the curtain. He's showing a little bit more about each and, every, each and every passage. He's showing a little bit more about how he reveals to uh to the world uh, that he is the fulfillment of everything that God promised previously in the Old Testament. So when we get to John 3.16, and like I said, the gospel in a nutshell, we need to be a bit careful when we approach it. Because John 3.16, while it's a big and an integral part of the gospel message, if we pluck it out of scripture by itself, we, we might miss a lot of things. And, and when we, as we unpack, you'll see, some of that, you'll see some of that come to light. Boiling the gospel down to one verse is dangerous business. We should not build our faith on a single verse, but instead on all of Scripture as it's revealed to us by God. So when I said that the gospel, uh, this is the gospel in a nutshell, what I mean by the gospel is just good news. There is news that's given to us in the Bible, and it happens to be good uh, because of what God has done for us. So in John 3.16, begins to show us the goodness of the gospel. And again, we don't want to lift it out of the Bible. We want to, we want to use it uh, as a, to grant us a better understanding and as another step in God showing us his plan of redemption or how God saves us uh, and redeems us and frees us from slavery to sin and ultimately death. So, Again, today is Easter Sunday. You're well aware of that fact. Uh, but today is Easter Sunday, and this is the day that we as Christians set aside to uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the eternal life that is offered to us and the defeat of death. Uh, now, if to be clear, and you probably heard me say this before, but uh, we celebrate a risen Christ every Sunday. It's not just Easter Sunday that we celebrate a risen Christ. The resurrection is literally the foundation of our faith. Uh, Without the resurrection, the Apostle Paul says that we among people are most to be pitied because our our religion, our 
our uh, our our worldview is based on a, a man who died, and if he didn't come back from the grave, then there isn't much hope for us. But he did. He rose again on the third day, and so we have an unwavering, uh, steady, sure, and fixed hope. Christians are constantly living in light of the good news that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins and was raised, guaranteeing us eternal life. And that's the, that's the part of John 3.16 that intersects with Easter Sunday, is that eternal life component right there at the end. Uh, everyone, whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. So, Let's, let's consider, though, more deeply John 3.16 in the light of the rest of Scripture and what we've seen so far in John chapter 3. And so in John 3.16, I want you to see three things this morning. Three things this morning. And they're all going to be M words, so hopefully they're easy to remember, although the first one sounds a little goofy. First, the menace. Second, the mission. And finally, the motive. The menace, the mission, and the motive. So let, let's start with the menace. And when I think of the word menace, I, I tend to think about Star Wars a lot because I like Star Wars. So I think about the Phantom Menace, Star Wars the Phantom Menace. Um, that's the only pop culture reference. And you might say, wait, hold up. What about Dennis the Menace? Um, I don't think Dennis the Menace has the cultural impact that Star Wars does. If you want to argue about that, I know he had a moment in 1993 when Dennis the Menace like flicked a flaming marshmallow on Walter Matthau's head um, and then the credits rolled at the end of that movie. Um, that's great. If that's your argument, okay. I think Star Wars wins. Uh, the Phantom Menace, though, throughout that movie, uh, we slowly begin to understand that there's a new threat to the galaxy far, far away, right? Like, the Sith have returned, and the Jedi need to develop a better understanding about the threat that they face, uh, because it, uh, it threatens their way of, of life. So when we think about menace, we want to think, uh, think about threats or danger that comes our, our way. John 3.16, Jesus shows us or identifies our menace. It identifies our menace, that, that one danger or threat that we could not circumvent, that we could not get around, that we could not evade. And that threat is death. Jesus says that the threat, the danger, the menace is perishing. Is perishing. You see that word right there in the middle. Perish. Benjamin Franklin famously wrote in a letter, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. That's true, but I think, I think several people have evaded taxes successfully, but no one has evaded death. You will die, I will die, everyone in this room will die. But Jesus means more by this word perish than just physically die. He means, uh, he means more than just a flat brainwave. He's talking about something more holistic. He's talking about perishing. Because when you die, it's not the end. When you, when you die, when this physical form, when no longer a heartbeat, when there's no longer blood going through your veins, when your brain, is no, uh, your organs shut down and you begin to decay, that's not the end. 
Over the last several hundred years, and this is probably an exponential curve, but we've been catapulted towards a world, at least in the Western Hemisphere, we've been catapulted towards a world where people readily deny that there's anything after physical death. You just, boom, cease to exist, nothing else, right? Your body goes back to the earth, you rot and feed the bugs and whatever, and that's it. That's your whole purpose. Uh, f- human philosophies like humanism has led to things like atheism, a-, a full denial that there is even a god or gods. And a growing percentage of people in the West identify as atheists, and they say that there is no higher power, that there is no god in heaven. They say you die and it's done. There's nothing else. Immediately we find hope here. Even in the word perish, we find hope. Because what God says to us here is that there is something more. There is something more. Our society that tends to drift into there is nothing after death uh, also produces men and women who are depressed and suicidal. We wonder why people opt in our world for easy divorce and abort their babies. We wonder why a message of your special doesn't help our kids succeed more. I think it's pretty simple. If we tell people in our society that there's nothing after this life, then what on earth do they have to live for? What, what is keeping them from descending into hopelessness and despair? And you only live once, uh, do what makes you happy message is not good enough. And it is not good enough to keep people from descending into madness. Our society presses us, and we even do this as Christians. We push our kids to believe that the material world is all that there is. Not because of what we say, but because of how we act and how we live. We think about material a lot in our society, and we're told to do what makes us happy. And a lot of times that's just accumulation of wealth and material. We are told that we're the center of the world and by default, the whole world. And we live lives that are in pursuit of personal peace and affluence. Francis Schaeffer, an important apologist in the 20th century, said that those were the two impoverished values that have laid hold of Western civilization. Personal peace and affluence. And our lives so often just reflect those two things over and over and over again. Those are the most important things. A culture that openly denies any type of continuation after physical death, though, this is the logical conclusion. Just leave me alone so I can do what I want. But for the Christian... And what Jesus says here in John 3.16 is that there is more. There's, the, the, there's more beyond just this physical, physical world. So the threat or the, the menace here is perishing. And not just physically, but enduring the punishment of a holy God for sin for all of eternity. See, sin isn't just not living into your potential. Sin is actually violating a standard that God set. Breaking a standard. 
that God set for us to live by. And we break that standard daily. We break that standard in our nature. We break it in the choices that we make each and every day. And when we break the standard, that's sin. And the Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death. And this is the menace. The wages of sin is death. Everyone who breaks God's law is a sinner. There is no one in this room and no one on the face of the earth who falls outside of this. That includes all of us. There's no, I'm a pretty good person or I'm better than that guy over there. You break the standard at one point, you're guilty of breaking it all. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. But the hope found in John 3.16 is that there is more. Jesus says there is a way to not perish. There's a way to not perish but have eternal life. There is a way to not endure the punishment of your sin for an eternity separated from God in hell. And that brings us then to the reason why Jesus came into the world and the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus, I'm going to make a statement here. I'm going to say it a couple times because it's a mouthful. Jesus came to die to give us life, and he was raised never to die again so that the life that he gives would never end. Jesus came to die to give us life and was raised never to die again so the life that he gives would never end. This is the hope of Easter Sunday. This is the long and the short of it. John 3.16 is about God's gracious action. Look at the beginning, the first two words. For God. For God. And we'll get to that when we get to the motive. For God. That's the motivation we see there in the beginning of verse 16. But then the action. He gave. God is the one who acts. He gave. John 3.16 is about God sending His Son, Jesus. It's about God sending His Son into the world and, and through His Son offering eternal life. And so, one of the dangerous downgrades of the popularity of this verse is that John 3.16 often becomes about you and me. We want to make it about us. But it's not about you because it is God's who, is, who bears the motivation for the activity and the activity itself he gave. I said again that John 3.16 is probably the most popular verse in Scripture, um, or at least the most well-known in our culture. But on, in February of 2019, Christianity Today reported that John 3.16, up until that point, had been the most shared verse on social media, but now, in February of 2019, that switched, that changed. The most shared verse on social media became Jeremiah 29.11, and maybe you know that verse, but in that verse, uh, the verse says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Now, that's, that there's truth in that text, although sometimes that, that verse gets plucked out of its context. When Jesus or when God is talking to uh, the the Israelites about their Babylonian captivity, um, but we won't go into that. 
But the question I want to ask, though, is why did John 3.16 get overstepped by Jeremiah 29.11? Why did this verse take the place of John 3.16 as the most shared verse? Um, a guy who studies this sort of thing at Durham University, Reverend Dr. Peter Phillips, that's a lot of titles. But he says, uh, people don't want to put a verse about Jesus' death upon the cross on social media. It's a bit heavy. Huh. The, the cross of Christ is an offensive thing. If you, if you, you gen, again, m- maybe you've been part of a church for your entire life and you just think about the cross. But the cross of Christ to the world is an offensive thing because it is a blood-stained instrument of execution that becomes the symbol for our faith. And upon that blood-stained piece of wood, that Jesus was lifted up on, that's where we find the forgiveness of our sins and the deliverance that we need because of the sin that leads to death. But that's not clean. It's a bit heavy. And it's hard to stomach. The cross was exactly Jesus' mission, though. If you were with us last week when we considered verses 9 through 15 in John chapter 3, we saw in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus would be lifted up to die on the cross, to shed his blood. Jesus points back to the the events in Numbers with Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, to his being lifted up on the cross to die for the sin of the world. On the cross, which was Jesus' mission, he paid the penalty for sin. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And, And you and I, friends, we don't deserve the personal peace and affluence that we think that we do. We deserve, in fact, we deserve the exact opposite. If you're here today and you're trusting in something that is not the person of Jesus Christ, and because you're trusting in your hard work or the way that you choose to live your life, and you think because of that you deserve personal peace and affluence, John 3.16 comes at you and cuts against that grain. Because instead of a life of personal peace and affluence that car commercials say that you deserve, you actually deserve the exact opposite. You deserve eternal death. You deserve to perish eternally. This is what the Bible teaches. You don't deserve life, let alone a life of comfort and ease. You deserve an eternity of the exact opposite. So we break the standard that God set and deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on us unendingly. But on the cross, on the cross, this is the message of the cross, which is so offensive and too heavy apparently to share on social media. The cross of Christ is the place where Jesus took our sin upon himself and the wrath of God was redirected off of us and onto him. Jesus is like an umbrella on which the torrential downpour of God's wrath came. And if you are in him, you are under that umbrella, and not one ounce of his wrath will hit you. You couldn't endure one ounce of it anyways. 
Jesus did in a few short hours on the cross what would have taken us an eternity in hell to pay for. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sin upon himself, and that wrath of God was redirected of us on off on, onto him. So every time you put yourself or something else before God in your life, in every instance where you worship something in your life that isn't God, and every time you make a promise and you don't keep it, and every time you trust in the work of your hands and not in God, and every time you dishonor your parents or slander an individual or a, an authority placed over you, every time you hate your brother, every time you lust in your heart, every time that you took advantage of someone or something, every time that you lied, that you gossiped, that you slandered, every time you thought something someone else had was rightfully yours, every time that you sinned, and every time that everyone sinned, at any place, at any point, Jesus paid for it. Friends, that much wickedness, you, you could not look at a ledger of your own life and not be physically sick. The thoughts of your, that go on in your mind and the desires in the deepest recesses of your dark heart, would, you couldn't fathom it. You would, you would be physically sick. And Jesus paid for everything. Jesus paid for every ounce of it. There is not one part of it that he did not pay for. Jesus took it all upon himself. And this is the mission of Jesus Christ. To pay for the sin that we committed that leads to death. To die to give us life and to be raised never to die again. So that the life he gives would never end. And that leads to the motivation. Why? So Why? Why the cross? Why the resurrection? What is God's motivation for sending Jesus into the world to die for the sin of the world? Why would God give his only son? Now, right about now, that brunch is kicking in, and I'm starting to feel it, and so stick with me here. We, we, find, the motiv- we find the motivation, I'm about to go into a coma, we find the motivation for for God to act in the way that he does, in John 3.16, the first four words, for God so loved. So the motivation for the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is the love of God. The motivation is love. Now, before we move on, there are some things that that does not mean. There are some things that that does not mean. We've established so far that this verse isn't about you. It's not about me. It's first about God. He, he, for God, that's the motivation, and he gave is the primary action. God is the actor here in this verse. We must realize that our sin carries the penalty of death, and so we need to conclude that it's not because of something in us that prompted this expression of love. Now, for us in our society, people like to say, well, you're enough and there's enough good in you and that sort of thing, like you're a lovely person and so God loved you. But that's not what John 3.16 says. It says, for God so loved the world, 
God's love is the motivation for what transpires in John 3.16. What transpires is sending Jesus into the world to pay for sin. The first letter that John wrote uh, later in your New Testament, he tells us that God is love. So God is love, and therefore his motivation for sending Jesus into the world to pay for our sin is his own character. It's his own character. He, he operates within himself. He cannot deny himself. He cannot tell a lie. God is love. And so, for God so loved the world is a statement about God's character. God created everyone and everything, and all of it is rightfully his. But because of our rebellion, we're separated from God. God can't tolerate that rebellion. He can't tolerate sin. But God is patient. Think about God's character. He is patient. He is kind. He is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love. And so, even when we were God's enemies, actively hating God, spiritually dead, God sent Jesus into the world to bring us back to him. For God so loved the world is a statement about God's character. The Apostle Paul, I think this verse gives a ton of clarity to John 3.16, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love. God puts his character, who he is, is put on display. His loving, patient, kind, merciful, gracious character is on full display through what? Through giving up of his son. To be raised up on the cross. To be put to death for the sin of the world. God's motivation when he poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of on you and instead of on me was to show his love. It's easy to love something or someone who does the right thing all the time. Not only is it easy, I would say that it's not really even love. Because love is on its fullest display when it isn't deserved and when it's sacrificial. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent Jesus into the world as the ultimate expression of his love, sacrificing his only son, the sinless, spotless, perfect lamb of God for us when we were his enemies. So what? Here's here's the good news I think that we should walk away with this morning. Here's the good news. This love is for you but it's not because of you. This is good news because no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you, how much merit you possess, no matter how much you think that you deserve it or how much you think you can earn it, you can't. You couldn't even begin to. The Bible is clear. You can't even begin to do it. So it's not because of you, but what 
the good news of John 3.16 is that it is for you. It is for you. Just because you can't do anything to get it doesn't mean that it's not for you. Jesus Christ came into the world and died for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was raised on the third day in order to end the reign of death. In Christ, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are made whole, and you are guaranteed to be raised with him to live for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. In Christ, those words are so important. They see them over and over and over in the New Testament. You are joined together with him. And so when we celebrate a risen Christ on Easter Sunday, what we're saying is that that event, that historical, physical event that took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked out of the grave is also our destiny if we are in him. And it's all because of the love of God that is for you. Again, not because of you, but for you. And Jesus here gives us the proper response. What's the proper response to this truth? It's right there in John 3.16. That whoever believes in him. Not just a one-time acknowledgement of existence. It's not believing in is not just an acknowledgement of existence. Your response should be, I be- should not be, I believe Jesus exists, so eternity is for me and I'm good. That would be a dramatic misunderstanding of John's use of the word believe. Rather, belief here is an ongoing act, not just a one-time claim. It represents a position of the heart and a mind that recognizes that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven and not to perish and to have eternal life. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not trust him with all that you are and live into him in the way in which Jesus communicates in John's gospel, then you will perish and you will not have eternal life. Believing acknowledges that God has said through Jesus Many things about himself. And he has said many things about us. And he has required many things of us. But he's also given us the strength of himself in the form of his Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of you if you are in Christ. And unites you with Christ. And guarantees that you will be raised in the last day. Believing affirms that Jesus is God's greatest gift and satisfaction and contentment and joy and peace and acceptance and identity are all found in Him. We should respond with belief. Belief, or we could say here faith, is what links us with Christ. And when we are linked with Christ, eternal life is ours. Sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution. This message is for you today. It's for all of us in this room. If you, if you have not believed in Jesus, it's for you. The, the call is clear. Be, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Know that he is the only way to be forgiven for your sins. You cannot strive. You cannot merit it. You cannot earn it. Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of your sins. And he's the only way for you to have the wrath of God removed off of you. Jesus paid it all. 
If you do believe, if you are in Christ, this message is for you this morning. The love that God showed us in Christ ought to be our motivation this week. We don't just live like that's for the couple hours that we're here this morning on Easter Sunday. This is for us every moment of every single day as the primary motivation for all that we say and we do. To share the truth and to live the truth. Friends, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray.